It is complicated at times. It's one of the most comprehensive theological works that we have in the entire Bible. Um, it was the Welsh pastor and theologian Martin Lloyd-Jones who actually spent 12 years preaching through the Book of Romans in his church. And during those 12 years, he wrote a 14-volume commentary set on the Book of Romans, um, which totals over 4,500 pages and over 5 million words. And at the end of 12 years of preaching and writing 5 million words on the Book of Romans, he said this to his church. He said, I trust now that the Holy Spirit will fill in for you all that I have left out. <laughs> because the Book of Romans truly really is its deep, deep theological work, and that's what God led Paul to write. But do you know how the Book of Roman end, Romans ends? Find your way to the last chapter, chapter 16 of the Book of Romans, because the Book of Romans, this deep theological work, this textbook on what is the Christian faith, ends with an entire chapter of just personal greetings. Of Paul saying, thanks to so-and-so, thanks to so-and-so, hey, um, say hi to your mother for me, these sort of things. Um, and when I think about how I would end, like a very intense teaching, an intense theological work like the Book of Romans, I would think that maybe you'd, you know, reiterate some of those important teaching moments that you have, you know, let's say the important teaching points again, maybe you're going to direct to some other information, remind them, you know, go back and read the Book of Deuteronomy as well. But the Holy Spirit guided Paul to end this theological work with thanking people, with greeting people. Um, this is actually how Paul ended almost every single one of his books and his letters. It's by thanking people. Some of the greetings are really long, some are really short, sometimes right in the middle of explaining some theological concept. Paul says, oh, and by the way, you know, so-and-so has been great. They've been really great to me. And there are always these points where he shifts from this dense theology into personal greetings. And it makes sense that the Holy Spirit would guide Paul to do that in the book of Romans because about relationships. That in the kingdom of God, relationships are central. Uh, because Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. He said, this is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. And so the purpose of theology, the purpose of our digging into Scripture is to move us to love God and to love others. And this is essentially the big idea that we're going to be looking at as we look at how Paul spent an entire chapter in Romans just thanking and greeting people. We have to recognize that our study of the Bible, our theology, it must move us to love God and to love others. This, I think, is the example that Paul shows us by giving us a whole chapter of greetings, that it must move us to loving God and to loving others. It's not just for the building up of our minds, for the outpouring of God's love to those around us. It was C.S. Lewis who said that next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. Or A.W. Tozer said this in his book, Knowledge of the Holy, which is all about learning about God. He said that the man who comes to write belief about God is relieved of 10,000 temporal problems. But even if the multiple burdens of the time may be lifted from him, the one mighty single burden of eternity begins to press down upon him with a weight more crushing than all the worst woes of the world piled upon him. And that mighty burden is his obligation to love God with all his heart and mind and soul and strength, and to love his neighbor as himself. He says that no shortened version of this commandment will do. You can't have just pursuit of God and love of God, without what Jesus said, that is to love neighbor well. And so our theology, our study of the Bible, it must move us to love others, it must move us action in our midst in this family. As Tozer said, no shortened version of this command will do. And so the reality is that the book of Romans is nothing without chapter 16. It's nothing without all of Paul's encouragements and all of his thanks to these people. It's not complete without the names, the relationships, the love for one another that is present in that church. And so what we call Romans is, we usually call it a book, um, but really it's a letter. And you'll notice that in the New Testament, that most of, especially Paul's work, they were letters. And so when those letters were written, when the Holy Spirit inspired the authors to write them, they were not just written as like general theological textbooks for us to just build up our knowledge, but there were faces, there were people, there were names in mind when they were written. So this book was written to the Romans, this letter was written to the Romans, but it was also written for us. 
faceless names, people in mind when he wrote this. I think we have to understand. And so we're going to read Romans chapter 16. This chapter that I feel like, you know, God, couldn't you have just left out all of Paul's personal relationships in here and, and teach us theology? But I think this is a really important thing in here. And so we're going to read this, then we're going to come back, and we're going to see from Paul's example how is it that we can love one another like the way that Paul did it. So find your way, verse 1 of Romans 16, right at the end of that letter. We're going to read through this. We're going to read through this chapter together, and the words will be on the screen as well. So Paul ends this word of Romans by saying, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church of Centraea, I ask that you would receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need from you, for she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ. They risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. And greet also the church that meets at their house. Greet my dear friend Eponidas, who was the first convert to Christ in the province of Asia. Greet Mary, who worked very hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. Greet Ampliatus, my dear friend in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our co-worker in Christ, and my dear friend Statius. Greet Apelles, whose fidelity to Christ has stood the test. And greet those who belong to the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my fellow Jew. Greet those in the household of Narcissus, who are in the Lord. Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, great names. Um, who's, those women who work hard in the Lord. Greet my dear friend Persis, another woman who has worked very hard in the Lord. And he said, greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. He even greets a dog, that's crazy. And his mother, who has been a mother to me. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, and the other brothers and sisters with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nares, and his sister. Maybe he doesn't remember his name. And Olympus, and all the Lord's people who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. And all the churches of Christ send their greetings. And he has this inserted. He says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teachings you have learned. Keep away from them, for such people are not serving our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Everyone has heard about your obedience, so I rejoice because of you. But I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. And he says, Timothy, my co-worker, sends his greeting to, as to Lucius, Jason, and Sassipater, my fellow Jews. I, Tertius, who wrote down this letter, greet you in the Lord. And Gaius, whose hospitality I and the whole church here enjoy, send you his greetings. Erastus, who is the city's director of public works, and our brother Cordus, send you their greetings. And the book of Romans ends with this whole chapter. And he has a benediction at the end. But I read this and I wonder, you know, couldn't the Holy Spirit have just like left out Paul's personal stuff? And couldn't he have just continued to give us theology? Like, why is this included? And I think the main reason that's included here is to remind us that our theology, our study of Scripture, our pursuit of God, is also a result of love for one another. It's about people, about relationships, it's about how we love one another. So here in this chapter, Paul, Paul mentions at least 27 people, um, and this essentially is a picture of what the church is supposed to be like. It's a tight-knit family, deep, close relationships. And there's a sense where it's kind of impressive just how many people Paul was able to greet and know here, um, and I imagine that's probably one of the gifts that the Holy Spirit gave him is this high capacity for just loving and knowing others. Um, and I would ask you guys, do you think you could name 27 people in this church? And you could greet in the same way. You think you could do that? You think you could do 27 just like Paul did here? I think that might be a bit of a challenge and something that we could work towards. Um, but either way, what Paul shows us here, this is an example, I think, of what a church is to look like. A picture of how a church is supposed to be this deep web of friendships and families. And we've seen examples of that. Our church has done a great job of this at times. Just a few years ago, uh, many of you remember when Jesse Perigo passed away, and the church really rallied around Vanessa, rallied around her when she needed to move, when she was dealing with all the different end-of-life situations that had to take place with Jesse, and the church showed themselves faithful as a family, the drop of a hat, all in to help Vanessa. And we understand, you know, that the church 
It's not just a city, it's not just a building, it's not just an event, it's this family, it's this list of relationships, essentially. But this is what the church is supposed to be. And one of the greatest tragedies, I think, in Christian history is that there was a time when church became a building, right? It was in the days of really ornate cathedrals and, and really intense Christian artwork that the, the physical objects kind of became the focus. And, and churches were built without spaces to gather and to greet one another. It was just focused towards the worship service. And while I think holy architecture and the artwork is important and valuable, I think it can lead to too much emphasis on the physical structure. And so I think overall, there's been the idea of a church as a building has really just done a disservice to the church throughout history. Hopefully our meeting in the theater here helps that. Um, so I don't think we struggle too much with seeing church as a building. We've bounced around from place to place here. I don't think we struggle with that idea. But I think we, like many modern Christians, can struggle with the idea that maybe we know church isn't a building, but I think often people will think, well, church is an event. Church is two hours on a Sunday. We would say, no, we know it's not a building, but yeah, church is an event you go to. I would say that the picture Paul paints here the end of the book of Romans, it's church as a deep web of relationships. Church is literally a list of people. The churches. So let's walk through this greeting. And as we walk through this greeting, we're going to go back through this chapter. And I want you guys to be active in this and to be asking yourself the question, be taking notes, who here at Common Ground Church do these greetings remind you of? As we make our way through some of the things that Paul says about these people, can you think of someone in our midst that you could say the same thing about? Is there someone here who, like Phoebe, has done this, or like Aristobulus has done this? And I want you to be thinking, who here at Comic-Con do these people remind me? Who comes to mind? But also at the same time, here's the other thing I want you to be considering, I want you to be thinking about, is which one of these people could also be you? Which one of these people, which, what kind of blessing that Paul is thanking these people for, could you be a blessing to those around you? Who in Romans 16 can you be like? Maybe there's someone who God is calling you to be a benefactor of, or to be a blessing to, or to work hard for. So we're going to work our way through it. And I want you to make notes. The name or face comes to mind. Write that down. Record it. Who comes to mind here? Who can I be like this? Who can I be a blessing to? These people in Romans 16. So Paul starts off by commending to you our sister Phoebe, he says. And Phoebe here, um, it seems to be that she is a pretty important leader in the church. It's said that she's a deacon, and there's a lot of range of possibility of, of what her authority and what her role would have been in being a deacon. But the deacons, as we read, they were first installed to care for people, to love people. Um, when the early church first grew and 3,000 were added to their mix in one day, the disciples who were running the church realized that that was too much for them to handle. One of the main things that they did is they had these big meals together, and the disciples were trying to wait tables, and they're trying to talk to people, they're trying to care for people, and they realized, we need help. And so they installed these deacons, these servants, who would care for people, who would love people. Um, and they had this very important role in the church of taking care of people's needs. And here, it seems like Phoebe has that. So she's a servant who cares for the people. She's engaged in the ministry of the church. But not only that, it seems because Paul is saying that I commend to your sister, and he's sending her there, that a lot of scholars speculate that she was likely the envoy that Paul sent to deliver this letter, that she was sent with the letter of Romans. She's the one who went out and was with it. And this envoy position was a very important position, very difficult to fulfill. Um, if you read in the book of 1 Maccabees, which is like a Jewish history book um, that's in the intertestamental time, there's actually a whole list of punishments for an envoy who doesn't stick to what the rabbi had wrote in their letter. And so the envoy is told, here is the letter, take this to the people, and if you mess it up in any way, they could face prison, they could face fines. They had all these punishments if you were to stray from the rabbi's letter. And so if that was their task, it's a very important task, very important job here, with risk of punishment if you were going to let your own agenda get in the way. Phoebe here, she is trusted with that. Paul also says that she has been a benefactor to me, or some of your versions might say a patron there. Um, this, you, this word is used a lot, this benefactor, 
but most likely it could mean that she was in some way financially supporting Paul. Um, maybe she helped financially support his ministry, or she was just wealthy enough to be the one to travel around, or she was generous enough to make sure that it happened for other people. Um, but this is essentially why Paul encourages the church to help her with anything that she may need. Right? She has been a blessing. She has helped others. We need to be a blessing to her. She seems to take care of everyone else's needs. Are we taking care of her needs as well? She provides for others. We should provide for her. So I think this should lead us to think about those people who have cared for us. Those people who have bought us a meal, who have invited us into their home, those people who have cared for us, financially supported us, provided for needs. The people who are floating the bill on this place. I'll give you the top five list if you want. Okay, I won't. I won't write you out to. But either way, think of those people. Think of those people who are these, these benefactors, these caretakers, these people who seem to be supplying the needs for others. Because what Paul is saying is they're not to be viewed as a wallet, as just someone to care for us. We're to care for them. If they're the people who are who are caring for others so well, who are solving all these financial needs, then we want to make sure that they are equipped and able to do that. And I was just having this conversation with one of you recently where it can be kind of a thing in Christian circles where if, you know, the Christian owner of a business or something that you're doing business with, um, you know, is working with you, then it's pretty common that Christians, you know, will ask for a deal. They'll say, hey, you know, from brother to brother, you know, can I, can I get a little deal? Can you not make quite as much profit? And honestly, I think that's got to stop. I think if we view Christian small business owners as being capable of providing for needs and doing these things, then we want to make sure that they're profitable, not trying to take advantage of their, their finances or whatever. But Paul is saying, hey, Phoebe, she's been providing for needs. She has been taking care of people. We need to take care of her. We need to take care of her in any way we can. This, I think, is the instruction here. And then he goes on. He goes on and he says, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ. He says that they have risked their lives for me, but not only I, but for the churches, but the churches of the Gentiles are grateful for them as well. Um, and when I think of Priscilla and Aquila, I think of like the couple who wears matching clothes a lot. Um, because they're mentioned seven times in the New Testament, and every single time they're mentioned, they're always mentioned together. Very few people are mentioned seven times, and they're mentioned a lot, and then every single time they're together. Um, we're told that they were in a young preacher named off on something. His theology wasn't quite right. And so we're told in Acts chapter 18 that they explained to him where he was from. And instead of blowing off this guy as a false teacher and saying, all right, you need to get out of here and go do ministry somewhere else. Instead, the nature of a mature Christian here who views the church as this deep web of relationships. They don't demean him in front of others. They don't kick him out. They disciple him. They teach him. They say, hey, here's where you're wrong. Let me help you with that. That's <laughs> and so privately and respectfully, they did that. I think that's just an awesome example of how we are to be with one another. And we, at times, can get a little off track. We're to be people, if we know, theologically, where this person's off, gently, respectfully, lead in the right direction. Then at some point, they risked their lives for Paul. We don't know when that was, but we know that Jesus said, greater love is none than this, than to lay your life down for your friend. This is what these people did. So as we think of the people who were like Priscilla and Aquila, maybe it's that couple, matching close. I don't think anyone in here is. Just those people who continue to just serve and do everything. Those people who are willing to sacrifice for a friend, right? They sacrifice time, money, effort, comfort. They lay down their lives for others. It looks like they're trying every way that they can to love others. And then it says about them, Paul says to greet also the church that meets at their house. So Priscilla and Aquila, they had a house church. They had a church in their house. And in those days, depending on the city you were in, um, often the church consisted of a bunch of little house gatherings that made up the big, large corporate church. And sometimes they had a big, large corporate gathering, and then they would meet in homes throughout the week. Um, some cities were obviously more friendly to Jesus than others. So in Ephesus, there are historical accounts, actually. Ephesus was very open with the gospel for a long time. 
And there's a historical account written about one Easter gathering where they estimate that there were 40,000 Christians gathered. And they said that they would gather weekly with 10 to 20,000 Christians in one big gathering. Um, but some cities, like Rome, like where this letter was written to, were much more hostile to the gospel. And so they likely were never able to have public gatherings, never, never able to have everyone together like we get to have here. And so they were kind of chased into homes. They were only able to meet in one another's homes. And here, that's what Priscilla and Aquila have done. They've opened up their homes at great risk to them in order that the church could meet, that they could continue. And this is a mark on something that we see in the early church as well, that there were these meeting in homes, that there were these large gatherings. Because in Acts chapter 2, it talks about kind of the first conception of the church. And it says that those who had accepted his message after Peter preached this message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. And it says, here's what the early church was doing as they gathered. It said that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together, and they had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts, the gatherings. And then they broke bread in their homes, and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And so we see that there, where they were meeting together in the temple courts until eventually they got kicked out and chased out. Um, but they wanted to gather together in this large crowd. They wanted all the believers together. And they would meet together, they would have this teaching, they would get to know people who were becoming followers of Jesus, and they were spreading this message to those who hadn't heard yet. But they didn't just do that, they also met as a house, and it says. So they were meeting together, they are meeting in homes. Priscilla and Aquila were making it happen, opening up their home, in a place where they couldn't meet all together. The church could continue. And we really, I think we do a great job gathering here together, but as we reflect, you know, this last week, on what could we do better, and I think we could do the house-to-house better as a church. I think we don't have a whole lot of small groups, we don't have a whole lot of groups that meet together throughout the week. We would love to see that more. Just people who are gathered together in homes, just going through the Word, just praying together. Parents who are surviving, just encouraging one another. I think this is an important example of what's happening here, and it's something that Paul was thanking Priscilla and Aquila for. Thank you. Greet the church in their home. That they were to be commended for what they were doing, opening up their home so that the church could gather. So as you consider those people who have been that, who've opened up your home in which you've been ministered to, maybe you're also asking the question, do I need to open up my home to invite people in? Have church here to worship God, to encourage one another. I need to open up my home for God's people. Maybe that's a question that we ask as we just consider the work of Priscilla. Well, then he goes on in the next verse. The next person he meets. Read my dear friend Eponidas, who was the first convert to Christ in the province of Asia. Which, that's a pretty big deal. That's like a cool thing to have in your resume. Um, the first to believe. Um, so I imagine this epinephrine guy was pretty tough and courageous, right? And we need those people in our midst. We need the people in our midst who believe when nobody else around does, right? The people who follow Jesus even in difficult situations, even when maybe none of their friends do. Because he had to have been the first one in his family, the first of his friends, literally the first believer in Christ in the largest continent on earth. And to the people that often we need, those strong, courageous believers in our midst. And there are some of you in here. I know that some of you have grown up, you know, in, in Christian families where you just have like generations of Jesus followers and you've grown up in, you know, small Midwest towns with majority Christians or, you know, in um, Christian private schools. And that's great. Honestly, that's what I like pray for my own daughter. That's a beautiful story. But just think about the benefit of having a guy like Eponidas in your midst. A guy who's willing to follow Christ when nobody else was. A guy who, when the pressure comes in, it doesn't shake his faith. When others don't think following Jesus is the right thing to do, Eponidas doesn't care. He's someone you can lean on. He's someone who will encourage you there. And I know some of you are that in this body, but I know some of you, 
You have been called to be that, and you just haven't walked into that yet. Maybe God is calling you to be a faithful follower of Christ. A circle of friends or in a family where you're the only one. Paul makes a point to mention that here. Eponidas here, first convert to Christ in the province of Asia. And while one of the prayers that we have for Lydia is that she would have a boring testimony, that's, that's kind of what I pray, she would just follow Jesus, she would never know a time when she didn't know. Um, but one of the reasons that we named her Lydia is because do you know who Lydia was in the Bible? She was the what? A wealthy woman. A wealthy woman, that's what we're praying for. <laughs> Who are we going to live with when we're older? No, she was the first believer in the continent of Europe. Lydia was the first Christian in all of Europe. And so, same kind of situation. In a place where people were not receptive to the gospel, in a place where the gospel hadn't yet come, Lydia was an early adopter of that. And we also cursed our daughter into a life of having her name misspelled for the rest of her life. Um, because we spelled it the Russian way, as many of you know. Lena was born in Russia, and her family comes from there. And so we spelled it differently than most would spell it. And we kind of wrestled with, that, with this idea, because it's going to mean that everyone misspells it the rest of her life. And we named her that right in the middle of a time in which it's not very cool to be Russian. It's not very popular um, to be Russian at this point. Um, but the reality is that throughout history, it has never been easy to be a Christian and be Russian. Kind of the legacy of Lena's family is that, you know, they lived in the Soviet Union, where you were not allowed to follow Jesus. The state was to be God. And her grandpa ran an underground house church at their home, which was always essentially getting found out about, and they were always being persecuted for it. They actually had um, one of their children die in a house fire. And the front page of the news the next day reported that this Christian family had sacrificed their child um, because that's just what Christians do. And so they have this legacy. Maybe it's not very cool, maybe it's not very easy to be Russian and be a Christian, but yet Lena comes from this legacy of people who continue to follow Jesus, even in, the, even in the cultural pressure. And so really that's our prayer for our daughter as well. That she would be one of those people who even when it's not popular, even when it's not easy to be a Christian, she would be one of those people. She would be one of those courageous followers of Jesus. Also, one of the things that happens, if you're the first convert, well, essentially it means that you've been following Jesus the longest as well. And I think this is something to recognize. Um, those older, mature Christians amongst us, who are the people who have been following Jesus for a long time? They have walked with him through thick and thin, through all of these different experiences, because we need those people um, in our life. We need to listen to the wise people amongst us who've been following Jesus for a long, long time. Having those mature people around are really important. It's one of the things that this Eponidas guy was. And then he says, to greet Mary, who worked very hard for you. Now, there are like seven or eight Marys in the New Testament, so we're not sure which one this is. Um, but either way, Paul is making sure that the church knows that this lady has worked hard for you. Maybe you don't know it. Maybe she was doing a lot of the work behind the scenes. But she works hard for you. We have a lot of those people, hopefully you're recognizing. There are a lot of people who do a lot of work around this, behind the scenes here. And we have to just thank Kyle and Micah, who built the new high chairs out there this morning. They came in and just, you know, hex-wrenched everything together. There's a lot of work behind the scenes. People have to be recognized around here. Verse 7, he says, Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews who have been in prison with me. They're outstanding among the apostles. And they were in Christ before I was. Now, I'm not going to get into the whole Junia debate. Um, I know some of you are pretty familiar with this because every theology book that's been written from like 2010 to 2020 addresses it and talks about her. Um, we can talk about that separately, but the big discussion is, wow, was Junia an apostle? Were there female apostles? But I think it's pretty simple to see the word among there and to know that, okay, she was working amongst, with, not necessarily an apostle. And a ton of scholarship has been done about that. We can talk about that separately. But here, she's greeted. Something that's in here that he mentions. And then he has this whole list, this whole list of people. Greet this person, dear friend. Greet this person, my coworker. Greet this person. And he mentions to greet their whole household. He says, greet them. Um, greet those who belong to the household of Aristobulus. The whole household. So Paul didn't just know, you know, the people, the parents. He was encouraging us and making it clear that he knew their kids. He knew their siblings. He knew their extended family. And I think this is something that really is valuable in a church is 
in order to love each other well, we, we get to know one another's family. Ask questions about the kids. We continue to know not just the face, the immediate person, but do we know the whole family? I don't think it counts like with Crossman's because they're all just like right here, but there are certain like households and family that we can get to know and value. And Paul is showing that here. Who are the families in this mess? Who are the kids that are involved here? I think being a deep web of relationships as a church requires us to love the whole thing. And in verse 11, this guy has a pretty interesting name. Greek Herodian, my fellow Jew. What does that name Herodian remind you of? Herod, right? So, this is a bit of speculation, but some scholars point out that there was this, uh, this family, this dynasty that came through Herod the Great, who was really a mean guy, and it's possible that this guy Herodian was related to or in the dynasty of Herod. And if you know anything about Herod, he was a mean guy, killed a bunch of babies because he was worried about the Messiah. But nonetheless, here is this person, whether he's related to him or not, his name tells that story. But is he persecuting Christ? He's following Christ. He's obviously following Christ. Paul says to greet him. And Paul says he's his fellow Jew there. And so Paul, if you know his story, you know he was doing a pretty similar thing. He wasn't that much better than Herod the Great. Paul was also persecuting Christians, going after them, attempting to have them killed. And here Paul is saying, like, man, imagine him and Herodians sitting there together and being like, huh, look at us. Who would have thought we'd be Jesus' followers? Uh, you from the family of Herod, me who was killing Christians, yet here we are, worshiping Christ. So who was that around here? Who are the people with kind of crazy stories that you wouldn't imagine followers of Jesus now? Who would have thought? These are people that have to be in our midst. Have to be in our midst. He also greets this guy, Narcissus. So that name should sound familiar too, doesn't it? What do you not want to be in America? A narcissist, right? Um, so you know the story of Narcissicus. Um, it's a Greek myth about a man who was so beautiful, but knew he was so beautiful that he passed by a pool where the reflection was really clear, and he died staring at himself because he was so obsessed with the way that he looks. Some versions of the story say that he was trying to kiss his reflection and he fell in. Some say he just stared at himself long enough before he wasted away and died. Um, but either way, that's essentially the same name. And what you notice is this guy, who's a follower of Jesus, has this weird Greek name with all of this baggage wrapped up in it. And one of the things you notice in this whole chapter is that actually almost everybody has a Greek name. Um, there's a guy named Olympus. That was a Greek guy. The name Phoebe actually kind of has a nasty uh, meaning. It's kind of related to Princess Diana. If you know much about Diana worship, it was to help with fertility issues where you go to the Temple of Diana and you would involve a prostitute um, to help with fertility. Phoebe here is a name related to and one of the things that became common for a while in Christianity, you know, like a thousand years after this, is often people would take on Christian names. I think it's fine. I think it's good to take on Christian names. But here, Paul is not condemning this. There's no instruction in Scripture to say, oh, you've got to, like, change your name, clean that up. We have a whole list of people with these Greek names, with these rough stories. But yet, they're followers of Jesus. Yet in all of their history, all of the things that are connected to that culture has been it's been conquered. It's been washed away. So these people have come out of these cultures which are very opposed to the gospel, but nonetheless, the blood of Jesus. They've been washed away. And so they're able to say, my name might speak this, but my life is going to speak the gospel. My life is going to speak that I've been washed by the blood. I think we have to pay attention and to know amongst us is who are those people? Who are the people who Maybe they have a bit of a story. Maybe they have some skeletons in the closet, but nonetheless, it's all been washed by the blood. We have to, like Paul, be okay with it. We have to be okay with those people in our midst who maybe don't look all that much like we would anticipate the perfect Christian to look. Literally have names of Greek gods. They are part of the family of God. Part of the family of God. In verse 12, 14, 
is this long list of just people who deserve thanks. And this person, this person, this person. Read Philologus, all of these different names. And then he says in verse 16, to greet one another with a holy kiss, with a holy kiss. Um, and this is not something we practice today, so don't be writing down a list of people you think maybe you should um, practice this with. Um, but essentially, this is just a call to familial love. It's a call to deep familial love. Um, because this kiss as a greeting was part of the culture in that day. That's true. But one of the things we have to get that I think is overlooked sometimes is that even though it was part of the cultural practice, it wasn't part of the cultural practice for strangers. Like, kissing as a greeting was only something for family or really, really close friends. And typically it was done where someone comes over to your house or you go over to someone's house, and that's where you greet them with a kiss. You know, you go and you buy your bread from the baker. You don't go, oh, thank you so much. It wasn't something everybody just did with everybody. This was something you do with family. With deep, close friendships and with family, you know, you, they weren't just kissing people all around the street, which I think sometimes Christians think of. But what this was, was a cultural practice for family members, for close, close friends. And the early Christians said, we're going to take that into our midst, into our gathering. And we're going to view one another as close family, as friends. And so anyone who follows Jesus, you know, you might be sitting next to someone who you don't know very well. They're your brother. They're your sister. They are in your family. They're to be viewed as family. And so I think we have to greet one another warmly. We have to treat one another like family. In a 2023 appropriate way. But nonetheless, to view one another with that familial love. And one of the ways that we try to do that is obviously in our prayer time. You know, we try to have time where we talk with one another. We are praying for one another. Where we're opening up to the things that God is doing in our lives. That's one of the ways that we try to emphasize the fact that we are family in here. And I know lots of you love it. We get a lot of comments. We really love our opportunity to share with one another and to pray for one another. And I know that some of you aren't that big of fans. We've had comments from people who aren't really part of our body but have visited a few times who did not like it. Um, literally, I had someone tell me one time, like, why do I have to talk to people when I go to church? Uh, and I didn't really know how to answer that. I guess, where do I start? Why do I have to talk to people when I go to church? So there was this guy named Jesus. Let's start there. Um, where are we at there? Um, but either way, there are places where we go and we don't talk to people and we don't have to worry about it. Trust me, I'm not the most extroverted person in the world. Like, if I go to the store to get something, I'm not talking to people in line. I'm not talking to the cashier. I don't bother people. I get what I need, and I get out. And I leave, and that's good. Okay, if I go to a movie or something, I'm going to talk to Lena, and we're going to make fun of the movie all the time. But I'm not there to meet new friends. Um, and then people will, like, try to talk to you in the movie. What did you think? And I'm just like, security, please. <laughs> I pay money to watch things get blown up. I'm not here to make new friends. But then what I have to recognize, because that's my temperament, is that when I'm in here, it's different. This isn't entertainment, this isn't an event, this isn't a movie theater. I'm here to interact with people, I'm here to talk to people. While I might be tempted in the grocery store to, you know, as soon as I get my stuff, just like poop the smoke and I'm out of there, I think we have to flip the switch and not be church that way. And I know nobody views church that way. But just a reminder, I'm that in here, we have to change our habits, we have to recognize that there are situations where we're in, we're out, we're figuring our stuff out. But here, we don't have to kiss one another, but I think there's this call to deep familial love. Warmth is recognizing of another person who's a brother, who's a sister, right here with us. Right here with us. And that could even play into even just the way that we talk to one another before, after. It's one of the easy tests as I thought through this is are the conversations I'm having with this person more appropriate for the movie theater or for church? You know, if you were to ask, Afterwards, no. How did you like it? Who's your favorite? What'd you think of it? Yeah, that's probably a question you ask in a movie theater. Um, but what is a way that you would interact with family? We could interact with one another here like that. I think that's the call here. That could be the 2023 appropriate way to show this familial affection. After he makes this mention of the holy kiss, he says that all the churches of Christ send their greetings. 
And he goes into this little teaching. He says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching that you've learned. And these, these people causing divisions that he's mentioning, this isn't just like everybody who brings up politics or a different theological view. That's not what he's saying. Um, but you can read about it in Romans 12 and 14, where they had some issues where people were trying to make separate classes in the church. And they were trying to say that certain people aren't Christians because, you know, they were eating meat from these markets that had been involved in idol sacrifice. Or they were trying to say that in order to be a Christian, you had to continue to follow the Jewish practices. And circumcision was a big one in there. And there were these people who were saying, so-and-so is a Christian, and so-and-so, not really one of them, because they're not keeping up with this. The Apostle Paul is saying, don't let those divisions. This is a family built on faith in Christ. Don't let these divisions be caused among you. Don't let festivals and celebrations be what divides them. And he mentions the end. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. All the time since Paul worked with Timothy. He's like, Timothy says hi too. And then he mentions all these different people. Then there is a little personal note where we actually find out who was holding the pen here on the letter to the Romans, where it says, I, Tertius, who wrote down this letter, greet you in the Lord. And then Gaius, whose hospitality I and the whole church enjoy, maybe it's the same Gaius from 3 John, send you his greetings. And Erastus, who's the city's director of public works, and our brother Cordus, send you their greetings. And so he mentions now, these are the people that are with Paul. As Paul is writing to the Romans. These are the people he's with. These are the people working with him. And two of the people that you might notice are guys named Tertius and guys named Cordus. And one of the things to know with their names is the name Tertius literally just means third. And the name Cordus just means fourth. And most speculate it's not because they had big families. Because these men were probably slaves. And so what they would typically do, just give them a number. Give them a name. Hey, number three, number four. Here. And they're most likely slaves, and one of the reasons that we probably know they could be slaves as well, especially Tertius, is if he's working as a scribe. Um, because a scribe and the work of a scribe was one of the common jobs that you could do if you were freed um, from being a slave. Um, it is what is considered a liberal art. And I know today a lot of people are confused. They think like liberal arts is when you go to a school to learn how to be a liberal. But actually, <laughs> what liberal arts are is there were certain jobs, there are certain fields that you could only practice if you're a citizen and you were never a slave. So if you're going to be an engineer, a scientist, math, theology, if you're a slave, you couldn't practice that. You can't go to university and be an engineer. But there were liberal arts where if you had been liberated, if you had been freed from slavery, you could practice. And these were reading, writing, philosophy, being a scribe, these sort of things. And so most likely this is who these men were. They were liberated men. They were men who were stuck in difficult situations. And historians report that one of the things that early Christians would do is they would go and they would free slaves. They would buy them like you had to do. And then they'd say, all right, now you're free. You're liberated. Set you free from bondage. Set you free from bondage. And now you have a purpose. Now you have a purpose. Freedom here. We know that this picture of being free from bondage is a picture that we see over and over in the Bible from Exodus on throughout. This picture of God redeeming us rescuing us and, and giving us a purpose. I think we should recognize in our midst, maybe people don't seem to have all the gifts and the skills that we might expect to see, but that if God has freed someone, he's freed them for something as well. But there are people in our midst who maybe we could look at as having potential, having leadership for them, encouraging in what they could do. Because this is an important job, I would say, um, to not misspell all these names, but to pen the book of Romans for Paul. That's what Tertius was doing here. Most likely, three months later, end letter to the Romans. And this is how Paul ends the book of Romans. All of this theology, all this dense work, 15 chapters, culminated in readings. Because I think that's the application to all this theology. The love for one another. It's the recognition, the importance of relationships. To show that the church is to be deep web of relationships. I know that some of you still struggle with seeing church as an event. I'm glad you're here. 
wherever you're at with Jesus, we're happy that you're here, and we're going to walk with you. But I think we have to see church as these deep relationships. I don't want this to be a guilt trip or send you to a place of shame if you feel like you haven't done this well. But this is, this is a call. This is a call to not see church as a two-hour event on Sundays. This is a call to see church as a list of people. A call to live into maybe being able to name 27 people in here. Something about them. Something. Because here, even though we, we love the event, that is Sunday morning, right? We get to worship. The Spirit is here. We have teaching. We do get to spend a little time with one another. We love this event, but it's not the whole picture. If all you think of when you think of church is a two-hour event, then I think you have just a twisted, minute picture of what God envisions church being. Because Jesus didn't put the twelve together so that then they would just meet once a week for a few hours and figure out what to do. He didn't rise from the grave so that you would go to a service for two hours a week. Jesus rose from the grave to bring you into the family of God. That's Jesus' dream. I think we, as a church, if we take all the theology of Romans seriously, then we have to take this call and this greeting seriously as well. But we won't settle for anything less than that here at Common Ground. And this is actually a teaching I've walked our board with through twice. I've kind of preached similar things twice already up here. I'm going to continue to do that. I'll probably preach this message until you hate hearing it because I love you guys and I think this is a vision that Christ has called us to have church, that, that this service isn't just so we can have a couple friends and learn some good moral teachings to help us out throughout the week. I think church exists so that we would, like Christ, build these deep relationships. I think we have to kind of imagine what that would look like if we were part of a church where we weren't just faces in a crowd, where we were able to write a list, a letter of encouragement and thanks to 27 people. Imagine how that would look if we were each able to do that. I think it would be very different. The reality is that can't happen in two hours on a Sunday. We can't always do that. We can't foster on these deep relationships just in this time. The eight people in a room like this, uh, it can't really happen that way. This, these are things, these relationships, this depth, it's going to have to happen in living rooms, coffee shops, volleyball courts, all throughout as we are serving with the community side by side. That's where this kind of depth happens. Gathering here on Sundays is important. We love it. It's great. It's got to be more. We are leading into this vision that Paul sets. It's going to have to be more. I know the busyness that many of us are in in our lives. For some of us, just need maybe a kick in the pants or a reminder that we just need to get up and do it. Let this be calling to And I know that some of us in here are really struggling, really hurting. Some of you are stuck in sin. Some of you have had situations happen in life that just lead you to want to curl up and be alone. And I would just encourage you, I want you to hear this morning, that this is a call to let us be your family. This is a call to show up when others invite you. To open up and let others get to know you. I know there are some, of, some people in our midst here who have faced those seasons when all they wanted to do was go home and not see anyone. But because of the call of the Spirit, they didn't listen to that. They were in deep relationships, and they will tell you the difference that it made. The difference that it made to allow the family to be the family. So let me encourage you in that. And as we conclude here, be asking this question. We just read through Romans 16. Who here in common ground last night? Who here in this midst? Who has been like this for you? And on the flip side, who can you be like all these people for? Can you be like someone from Romans 16 for others? Please exercise this. Maybe this week you send a text. Maybe you build up the courage to thank someone in person. You write a letter. Uh, but would you take seriously this call? community. To encourage, to thank someone with service purpose. See opportunities for yourself to be this for others. Who are those people? During this time, you know that God has brought faces and names up. I would encourage you to lean into that. Follow after the Spirit's prompting there. Because this, this is what we're after. We're after this real community. And the kind of community where you're known, where people see past kind of the fashion that see who you really are. My pastor growing up always said that we need people in our lives 
who love us but are not impressed with us. And I think that is a key to a healthy church, where people know our faults, they know some of the issues, but they love us anyway. That's real community. So this is the call. This is a call to see not just increased friendships, church is a deep web relationships, that our theology must lead us of God and to love others. Love others well. Because this isn't just self-help advice for friendships. This is a gospel issue. This really is. Because the reality is that all eyes are on us for how we do this. Jesus said in John chapter 13, that by this, everyone will know you are my disciples, if you love one another. So you and I, we must live deep community. The world is watching. All eyes are on us. I think that's a good thing. Because there will be times when others will look in here and they know that we're followers of Jesus. They know what Jesus is about. They live in South Dakota, but it hasn't quite clicked. But being able to see how we love one another, maybe that can be the them to say, oh, see, see now, get it. This is what the gospel looks like. Look at how they love one another. Look at how they're in deep community. See now, belief in Jesus does. So I think it matters how we carry one another's burdens, how we greet one another, how we interact with one another. But the watching world can look in and say, I think I get it. I think I get what this is. So we have to end with that question. Are you living and loving one another in a way in which the watching world could look Understand what Jesus is about through this. Understand that all of our study of this complicated book and these weird stories move us to increase love for God and increase love for one. Living in a way that's displaying that to the watching world. So we may introduce your questions. Read someone this week. Might take a while to get to Paul's level of being able to do this for 27 people, but you're probably not that far off. And if you are, Plenty of opportunity. We're all on the same page. This is something we're after. So would you bow your heads and pray with me? We'll ask the Holy Spirit to help us as we now turn to worship. So Father God, we thank you for bringing us into your family, for adopting us sons and daughters, giving us now, God, we recognize this great calling on us to show our love for you through our love for one another. And we just ask for your help in doing that. I just ask that you would encourage everyone in this room, that you wouldn't lead us to guilt or shame because we haven't done this as well as we could have, but that you would encourage our hearts and encourage us to see the opportunities that are already before us. That we would be a people who truly display reconciliation by being part of the family of God is all about just through the way we interact with one another. So Holy Spirit, help us, we ask. And now, in light of all these things, we just turn to you in worship. So we love you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.